our hearts. Be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> One of the stumbling blocks for many from coming to Christ, coming to know him, is the question of marriage. They look at us in the church and they wonder, well, why do Christians care so much about marriage? Perhaps it's because of some blind obedience to an old and dusty book. Maybe we just want to be really self-righteous. The reality is, is there's a very important theological reason that we take marriage so seriously. Now, before we dive into this, this section of passage, I want to acknowledge that marriage and divorce and remarriage and all of that that goes around it is a sensitive and hard subject for many of us. For a lot of people, this, this, this brings up old feelings and hard feelings. And I've been praying this week that I would be sensitive to the reality of that. So please understand that as we go through this passage, that there is grace beyond grace for each and every one of us, for all and many our many sins. And so if I stumble and explain things poorly, please show me grace. And if you have questions when I'm done, by all means, graciously ask them. Graciously being the key word there. <clears throat> but this morning we come across yet another familiar scene, right? Jesus moves on to another region, and he's a big crowd, and so he's teaching them, and then these Pharisees come up, right? And, and there's this confrontation, and this has happened again and again and again in the gospel according to St. Mark. Their question is simple enough. And oddly, it's one that we still debate this day. And people in seminary and theologians waste all kinds of time arguing about this question. But the Pharisees come up to test him and they ask him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And there's two reasons that I think that the Pharisees ask this question. First is because there does seem to be several schools of thought within the Pharisee, the Pharisee tradition about what, what was permittable and non-permittable for, for <clears throat> divorce. What seems to be the most predominant, predominant prevailing school of thought within this debate is, is much like our modern age, which basically said, well, as long as, but, but with one difference, there was absolutely no equality in it, by the way. And, and so it basically said that a man could divorce his, re, his wife for any offense. The other reason I think that they're bringing this up is because Jesus has now moved into the region that John the Baptist was ministering. And if you remember all the way back to John the Baptist and, and what's going on there and, and how he dies, it's because he confronted Herod about his illegal marriage. He confronted Herod and, and subsequently Herod's new wife did not like this very much and wanted Herod, John's head on a, on a platter. So it's, it's entirely likely that this question is also a trap so that they can bring it to Herod and be like, oh, he's just like this other John guy in, in hopes of trapping him up. Now, as we start to read this passage, we do notice something that I, I hinted at already. Their dialogue, at least the Pharisees' dialogue, is very male-centric. The understanding of divorce 
comes down to this, right? They ask, is it lawful, not for a man or a woman, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they go on. And when he, he pushes back against them, they quote Moses, and they say, Moses allowed a man to write a, a certificate of divorce, and so on and so forth. The sad reality of this culture at that time is that women had almost no rights. A more extreme view of divorce, in fact, said that if a woman allowed the man's meal to spoil, he was within his right to put him away. This was extreme and not held by too many people, fortunately, but, but we see how hard that would be upon them. But Jesus makes it clear that that allowance that Moses gave was not because divorce is good or even permissible, but it's because of the brokenness of the world. Right? As we read on, we see him say, Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote this commandment. In other words, divorce breaks the natural order of how God created things to be. Now, what's interesting, as we move along, Jesus continues. And instead of appealing to the law, he appeals to the created order. He continues, but from the beginning of creation, God made them, male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here Jesus starts to pull out that man and woman were made for each other. And they were made for each other for a very specific person. In order to fully understand this, we have to flip back all the way to Genesis 1. This is what Jesus is pulling from, by the way. Genesis 1, 26 continues along in the act of creation when he gets to creating humanity. In this, God says, let us make man or humanity in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds and the heavens, over the livestock, over, every earth, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image and likeness, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, male and female were created to be the image and likeness of God. And and although Hebrew poetry sometimes likes to do these parallels, there's a reason that they're like image and likeness. And, And I probably beat to death image before in the past, but I'm going to beat it just a tiny bit more this morning. Image, together, male and female are meant to represent God on earth. My favorite example, of course, is when you go into a a different culture and there's a statue of the king there. So you remember, oh yes, he is our king. More locally, right, we fly flags in our town center and that sort of thing. So we remember, yes, well, hopefully we don't need to remember this, but, but perhaps we do need memories from time to time. We're citizens of the United States and we live in the state of Arizona. And so we fly those flags to be a reminder. That's what it means to be an image bearer, right? So look to your left or your right. The person next to you bears the image of God. At least Ted did did that. Thank you. (laughs) 
right? So the person next to you bears the image of God, and it points to you who is sovereign over the earth. Now, likeness here is is really interesting. And what's most likely why they used that word is because it has to do with relating to God. Together, men and women are meant to bear the image, but not only bear the image, but to relate to God, the creator, to have a relationship with him. This duality in creation is meant to encourage men and women into a deeper and deeper relationship with God, especially when we come together in marriage. Now, part of this deeper relationship in marriage not only has to to do with reflecting God's goodness, it's meant, meant to reflect God's love for his people. And we see this love at first in Genesis 3, right? We, we learn when, when the, the, the fall happens that God finds out, technically finds out, that <clears throat> Adam and Eve have fallen because he comes down for his evening stroll with them. Right? He comes down and he's like, where have you guys gone? We, we know, of course, that God already knows what has happened. But he, he cared so much for this element of creation that he came down to commune with them day in and day out. And as we move forward past the fall, we see all of these horrible things happen. And then God pulls out a people and makes a covenant with them. And if you read Deuteronomy carefully, you realize that there's this legal document in Deuteronomy that reflects the legal documents of the time, of around the area, where basically a, a, a stronger power would make a covenant with a weaker power that the weaker power would do X, Y, and Z, and for doing that, the, the, the stronger power would provide protection, so on and so forth. And so this covenant reflects this, but as we learn more about the nature of Israel's relationship with God, is it, we realize that it's not just this legal document, but that God sees himself as married to Israel. He sees this document as a marriage covenant, I was reading through Hosea recently, and and this is really where you see this fleshed out. Hosea is is a really fascinating and heartbreaking book. God says to the prophet Hosea, go and marry this prostitute. That's pretty shocking in and of itself, right? Go and marry this prostitute, this prostitute named Gomer, and have a family with her. And the beginning half of this, 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 this book of Hosea is back and forth between Gomer running off Hosea chasing her down and bringing her back, and Israel running off, and God chasing her down and bringing her back. And it goes back and forth until we get to the second half of this book where where just heartbreak sets in and God seems to give up on Israel. The marriage of of Hosea to Gomer is meant to reflect the marriage of God to his people. And by the time we get to the end of the book, God has basically condemned them, but he doesn't leave them hopeless. In chapter 14, he writes to his people or says to his people, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall be a blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the tree of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. 
They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like a grain. They shall blossom like a vine. They shall fame, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. See, Hosea sees hope even in their infidelity. He sees hope that God will continue to pursue them. But he also sees a hint of the new covenant coming. He sees a hint of Christ coming to redeem his people and bring them into this new marriage covenant. Now, this new covenant is really interesting, and Jesus does something really subtle within within something that we're very familiar with. We're very familiar with the communion service, the inviting of the people to the Lord's table. But what he's doing in the marriage in the in that in that moment is in the cup. He's inviting the church into a covenant of marriage with him. So we know a lot of things happen at the Lord's table. And again, it's one of those things that people like to debate ad nauseum. Oh, it's merely a memorial. No, no, Christ is truly present, so on and so forth. And it's one of those things where, yes, it is a memorial. We remember back to what Christ has done for us. But yes, we also spiritually commune with God as spiritually commune one with another. And this is the beauty of Holy Communion. But this passage reminds us of one of the lesser things we tend not to talk about, but yet is still a reality. When we come and we take the cup, Christ is reminding us that the church is the bride of Christ. He is making a marriage promise to us. He is reminding us that he has gone before us as the bridegroom to the church to repair a room for us in the kingdom of heaven. And in that cup, we look forward to the day that that marriage will be complete and that it will fully culminate. So the reality is, for those of you who are married, when you became one flesh with your spouse, it's a reminder of God's profound care for his people, his pursuit of them, and his pursuit of you. Practically speaking, there are reasons why marriage matter as well. In the context of the biblical world, this world that we were talking about before, and really, I hate to break to you, the vast majority of human history, marriage had a permanent marriage promised women security. Modernly, we've seen that studies have shown that permanent marriage, though often they like to use the term like committed monogamy, provides a deep stable satisfaction and happiness. But most importantly, as we've seen and started to pick up, as Christians, we understand marriage as sanctification. Your husband or your wife is a very different person than you. You probably already know that. (laughs) By learning to love them well, in their foibles, their sins, and yes, through your foibles and your sins, Through your grief and joy, you learn about the depth and nature of God's love for you, who loves you despite of your foibles and sins, who loves you in your grief and celebrates with you in your joy. God works through marriage to draw people closer to him. Now, people have written massive books on the importance of marriage, and I've only just 
skimmed the surface of it, but I hope by now you're starting to see how important marriage is. How it reflects what God has already done for his people. And in this text then, Jesus and his disciples go into, his, go into a house. And this is what happens next. The disciples ask him about this matter. And he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against her. Or he, she commits adultery. Jesus then hits the grief of divorce. To state it bluntly, Jesus tells us to divorce and remarry is akin to adultery itself. But what's most interesting here is that Jesus makes men and women equal players in their marriage. Right? So it's when a man or a woman does this. Elsewhere, scripture goes on to give us two reasons for divorce, adultery and abandonment of the covenant. Within the abandonment of a covenant, theologians generally agree that abuse is also considered. So there are biblical and right reasons for divorce. But what Jesus does here is he gives no wiggle room. Perhaps because our human nature so often wants some sort of wiggle room. But what about this, we often say? But Jesus makes a note that divorce is wrong and a source of deep grief. While there are biblical reasons, as I discussed, for divorce, we should recognize the reality that the events leading up for this to happen, the acts of severing the covenant, cause grief, pain, and even damage the image of Christ. And again, much like marriage, many, many, many pages of ink have been spilled on divorce and justification, why it's wrong, and so on and so forth. But I, I hope that here we see This critical point, the action that shatters the covenant, whether it be adultery or abandonment or abuse, shatters the image of God. So when one does these things to the other, it wounds that person and destroys what was meant to be created within the two. But we're entering the season of Advent and I even remembered my purple stole this morning. And one of the themes that runs deep within Advent is hope. One of the themes that runs deep within Advent is hope. And our colic for today even starts to remind us of this reality. We prayed this morning, Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, now and ever. Amen. So we see within this collect, there's this hint at hope. This hint at hope that we are driving forward towards towards Christmas. <clears throat> it, a part of that theme is the first coming, right? Which we celebrate at the nativity of our Lord. His coming in which God now comes to pursue his bride. 
the miserable offenders such as we confess to be week in and week out in our confession, to bring light into the darkness. For those of you who have lost marriages, please hear that there is hope. God's love for you is so great that he took flesh and dwelt among us. He has pursued you to this point, this morning. He is pursuing you. As such, the first advent gives hope to all of us who have fallen short of the glory of God and gives hopes to miserable offenders such as myself and to you. But we aren't here just to remember. We're also here to look forward. To look forward to the second advent that the collect hints at. The second advent hope is our ultimate hope. For those of you who are single, whether because of divorce or death of your spouse, who are waiting to meet someone, meet someone or who perhaps are called to permanent celibacy, take hope. We all look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We all look forward to that day when we will be bound finally to our bridegroom, bound to Christ for eternity. There is a privilege for those who are called to celibacy, whether for a season or for eternity. And St. Paul calls this out. In 1 Corinthians 7, he writes to the Corinthians, I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How? To please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to scur your undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, what St. Paul pulls out here is the reality that sometimes singleness is best because it allows us to focus upon the Lord. And so if you find yourself in that season, for whatever reason, take heart. The Lord is coming for you and has pursued you and brought you here. In Advent, we look back at the hope of Christmas, and we look forward to the coming of Christ. <clears throat> but the second Advent has hope for all of us who trust in Christ. Hope for the married, that their marriage will have glorified God, showing each other and those they interact with God's love for the world. Hope for the divorced, that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, they will know the depth of love Christ has for them. Fully and tangibly. Hope for the celibate that they will see this love fully and finally. Hope for all of us who are miserable offenders and yet by his grace believe that our offenses will be wiped away, that every tear will be dried, that we will rejoice in the coming culmination of the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So marriage is, a, marriage is a taste of God's love for the world. And Advent reminds us that this love is culminated in one person, 
the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has come for us and will return for us one day, who will return for his bride, the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.